Script Lock, where we talk about storytelling in video games. I'm Nick Folkman. I'm Max Folkman. Today's guests are Thomas Grip and JT Petty. Thomas was a one-man developer of Fiend and other games before co-founding Frictional Games, where he's currently the creative director, and has worked on the Penumbra and Amnesia series, and most recently, Soma. JT is a writer who's worked on such games as the first Splinter Cell and its two, next two sequels, Chaos Theory and Pandora Tomorrow, Batman Begins, Outlast 1 and 2, and The Walking Dead Season 2. Thanks for coming on the show, you two. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, we'll start off with how both of you broke into games. So, Thomas, would you like to start? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I just started making my own games and <laughs> that's what I'm still doing. So I didn't really have like a break into games sort of moment, but I can, I, I'm guessing my, my sort of first break into games was when I got a TI-83 calculator in school when I was 16 and I, I got a manual from it and, and I realized that you could actually program stuff and I was like, shit, what is this magic thing? So I, I, I learned how to program that. Uh, made a, a computer game that spread through the class and RPG doesn't exist anymore um, and, and and it got pretty popular in the class and uh, and that's the, after that I've been doing my own game since really I, I tried um, learning learning new uh, languages after that and so on I know I had a, had a time I couldn't really understand this was in 96 something like that so so internet was a new thing i didn't have internet at home i had to go to the local library and borrow books and stuff like that so i just you know borrowed a book on pascal but that didn't tell you how to make games and eventually like after a year or so i found like a weird bookstore that had a power game programming book or something like that with really flashy graphics and stuff like that on, on the front and so I read that and learned about uh, ancient stuff like mode uh, 13H and stuff like that where you program DOS games in so I uh, started to make my own games from uh, in that and then I came across a a, a library called Allegro, which had a pretty cool community around it, and, and it fe- felt like I'm, I'm certain there were other like indie game communities at the time. This was in '98, I guess, and um, so, I, so I sort of met, met a, a, a other couple of people who worked with this library and like shared the games, and there was a community who gave feedback on the games and so on. So. I first released a shooter there, like a top-down shooter. And it's sort of weird because that style has sort of defined every single game I've done since, except for a, a platformer, a sort of stray project. But otherwise, all of my games have like been a evolved version of, of that first top-down shooter. And then I made a top-down horror game after that. And... Uh, then I started on a 3D game, so sort of again, there's sort of this, the same sort of controls and a lot of stuff similar. And but it never really panned out. I was using some guy's 3D engine again, there were no right like free Unity or something at the time. 2001 I think this was so I, I met up some other guy on, on the internet who was making his own 3d engine so I let's uh, he, he let me borrow that he was gonna use it I'm not sure what he was gonna use it for he ended up using it for archite- for an architecture studio or something like that this is very weird he moved to Singapore and s- stuff like that and then he sh- continuously changed the engine so the game I was working on was was called on birth which was a first person horror game 
um, never really took off and uh, it was never really completed. There is one playable, acceptable. I think you made actually a site about it um, um, where you can download it, but you can you can play it for like two to two minutes to fifteen minutes, depending on how lucky you are, <laughs> because it just crashes after a while and like the engine is gone and uh, like I, I can't recompile and get the error or anything like that. So it's like th- that's all there is from from that project. And then after that, I how the frictional game started it was that i was um this perhaps i shouldn't say it but i was actually using a program called direct connect and sharing some files horror related files <laughs> on the internet and a guy popped in there because i had some horror related files he thought were interesting related to silent hill and he found that oh what's this on birth folder like oh yeah it's my own game so oh wow i'm from a like a game a school that that makes games so could, could i help out with it so okay so 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 that was when the project was still like uh, uh, had a possibility of, of actually getting completed so through him I met another guy named Jens who then made sounds for for this uh, Unbirth game but but the game never because the, the engine then uh, then then you know he changed it too much I couldn't keep updating the project and uh, I had to let it go but then we had a first of all I made with this guy who found my direct connect plus Jens um, we made a thesis together a platform game um, and I made the, the engine for that platformer and stuff like that and then I my my own plan was to move just move to another town um, take some other course there um, it was a master's program in, in something I can't recall what and then Jens said why, why don't you have a go on a distance course like study from home and uh, have this course on Gotland where he and this other guy studied so I said okay wanted to do that and the, the thing was that the only thing you had to do during this project was one big game project and so during that whole project we worked I worked mostly on the HBL engine which uh, was the engine that we sort of were going to be using all of frictional games have been using so that was created during that course and we sort of lay the grounds to a lot of sort of the the, the what do you say the the, the stuff that uh, um, are special to our games like the physics interaction and stuff like that and uh, they came about this first uh, project so like what time period was that is this like around like 09 2010 something like that no this is 05 when we started the thesis project yeah so 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 05 started it on our own and uh, so so 06 it was uh, completed um uh, the the this sort of tech demo that we had and we put it into a competition the swedish game awards and we 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 got like a special mention prize that we didn't win um and and uh, so 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 we were like you know this project is it's not a very good project obviously because it didn't win any awards so uh we're just gonna release it for we're gonna uh, fix some stuff release it for free on the internet and then like all hell (laughs) broke loose basically um and, and and it was just downloaded like hell this this project and and what I was think that one we, called 
Penumbra, a Penumbra oh, text Penumbra. demo. Okay, cool. Um, so, so we like, oh, we gotta make something out of this. Like, we we we're gonna make, we're gonna try and make something commercial out of it. So, in 2006, I think it was in June, we started a commercial version of of uh, of that tech demo, which was then to be Penumbra Overture. And in the beginning of 2007, we uh, re released it um, through a very shady publisher. <laughs> Britain, who, who who never gave us, who never a lot of money that he was they were supposed to give us that <laughs> we never got. But but we had we, we we were lucky to have some digital sales and so on uh, along the way, and we sort of. Uh, got by and then it wasn't until we released Amnesia we released some other Penumbra games and then released Amnesia in 2010 and that was when the real like the studio was starting to make money for real but that's sort of how I got into games I'm not sure when I got into games during that whole process but I guess so, so <laughs> first commercial game first game I made I'm, I'm not sure I'm sort of this sort of weird thing I'm, I'm just sitting by my desk making games that when I started doing like when I started doing on the on the calculator and I've sort of I've never had like a proper job or anything. I worked as a dishwasher for three months. So, and, and you know, we don't have an office at Fictional Games or anything. Everyone sits from home. Um, so, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's always weird like that you're actually, that I'm actually making money out of this uh, because, because <laughs> it's just, it's just a hobby that I, that I can get other, uh, other people to pay me for sort of thing. Shit, I don't want to get too far into to because it's it's about story the podcast and all, but it's it's super weird how the climate has changed over the years. When we started out, like you had to have a publisher. Um, we had ninety percent of all of our revenues was from pre from sales and uh, the sort of what do you say prepayments that you get from the Pre-order. publisher and now we're like oh should we get a pub- retail like oh no that's that's like a negative almost because the work that it requires is so much that <laughs> we don't want to do it anymore so we just get all from digital so you're you're almost like selling your game directly you're talking directly to the customers there's there's only this steam or the psn or whatever in between otherwise you're just selling directly to the customers and when i started out making my own games like this was insane like selling games to other people at least from what i knew i know there was one game that I wanted to make. There was like a micro machine sort of game where small cars on a table or something like that. And he actually, this guy, you sent him money like <laughs> by mail and you got a floppy disk back with his full game. <laughs> that, that was how he like distributed his games. And this was in 99 or 98 or something like that. Obviously there were like BBSs and stuff like that at the time. And, you know, internet had started a bit, but, but, but that was my idea of selling your game and like, you know, make money out of that. You know, I don't think so. So actually like my, my 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 past self like 15 years ago or something like that would, would not believe like the situation i'm in right now you're sitting at home making like how is that even possible so it's it's uh it's been a pretty fun journey to say the least yeah i think the effect of steam on the video game industry is like shockingly huge and it's the only industry that works like that where you can actually sort of sell directly yeah um and I think it's it's responsible for a lot of like this sort of like blossom of amazing indie games that we've had in the last five years. Yeah, and and, and just comparing it to like film, where you know if if you want to have some digital distributor, say Netflix, you can't just be on Netflix like you're on Steam. In Netflix, they only buy like you have to have a publisher there, and they buy like like hundred titles or something like that from this publisher. So you have to be on their roster, and perhaps you're picked up by Netflix. So it's a 
it's totally different climate from uh, how it all works and I'm, I'm just amazed i know i know some other some other people who made these small games and they're selling like i asked him it was this game jaron like a friend of mine he made a game called dinner date and the whole game is about waiting for your dinner date to arrive and he sold like twenty thousand copies last time i asked him and that was a year a year or two ago and it's just crazy like twenty thousand copies of a ten dollar game like when we when we sold Penumbra online we had like 4,000 sales digital sales in a year or something like that and that was like you know with with PR and stuff like that and we had like a publisher helping out with stuff just crazy how uh, how 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 the whole thing has changed and and so quickly I want to ask before we get to JT but <laughs> what led to you becoming creative director because everything you heard from people who also work as creative directors that they don't like it because it's less hands-on. You don't get to work on products as much. You're more just handling people. Well, I, I like creative director is is just I'm um it's, it's two years ago I think I had co-owner on my business cards <laughs> like 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 those sort of titles is 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 not meaningless it's be- we're up to 15 people now in the company so it's beca- becoming a little bit more meaningful because you have to have some sort of hierarchy or at least some sort of more set roles than what we had in the past um but but i try and be as hands-on as, as possible and like code and stuff like that and i i, I don't want to get away from that and i still do engine coding and stuff like that even if i have like people employed who do it better than me i still want to be involved in those sort of things i think it's important for the final project that you that you know how every like have an idea at least of how every bit of the um the game is put together yeah absolutely okay jt how did you get into video games and what's your writing background yeah so i have a much less cool story i didn't didn't make <laughs> games on calculators or anything i mean i basically went in and applied for a job um i was like uh i guess i was around 22 or 23 i'd just gotten out of film school and I was trying to finish my last uh, student film. So I was like working on that at night and I was PAing on movies during the day. And because I was doing both those things, I'd started falling asleep on the job during the day. So I was like crashing trucks into things and, and being a very bad PA. So I started trying to find a day job in an office. And uh, Ubisoft was a, a smaller company at the time. This is, you know, 99. And they were opening a New York office and had put out an advertisement looking for a receptionist. Um, so I went in to apply for that job and there was literally like, uh, uh, it was a giant empty office and there was a desk that had, uh, two piles for resumes and one said receptionist and one said uh, screenwriter. And I was like, fuck that. I'm not answering the phone. So I like put my resume on that pile. Um, and then followed up with writing samples and a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I, I just finished film school. So I had a bunch of, uh, short stories and, uh, you know, I'd published a couple things in McSweeney's at the time and, and just had some stuff I could show them. And then it was like a probably like a two month interview process because um, like ninety nine I think the PS two was close to coming out um, but hadn't come out yet so it was going to be the first system that had enough memory that it was worth having a screenwriter because um, up until that time I feel like they would just like a designer yeah, would yeah. sort of write the dialogue or stories and figure all that stuff out um, and so it was like a made up job like I could kind of bullshit my way into figuring out what it was and and the interview process was just like completely surreal like um because nobody knew what questions you were supposed to ask like the uh like the third or fourth interview i think the question was was uh this this french canadian guy 
came in and he was like, I want you to imagine, I'm not going to do an accent, but he says like, I want you to imagine that you're in a haunted castle and you are surrounded by goblins and all you have is a magic sword. What would you do? And I thought it was like a trick question or something, but I was like, I I would use the sword to kill the goblins. And he was like, you're good. You're very good. (laughs) So like I kind of bullshitted my way through that. And then Got the job and, you know, in, in New York, we started making a Batman game based on the animated series called Batman Vengeance. Yeah. Um, and got pretty friendly with the guy who's running, uh, uh, uh the, the sort of the, the script end of Ubisoft generally, like overseeing it. And, and for a while, I was the only English language script writer at Ubisoft. So I got to have a hand in pretty much everything that they were doing. So I did like Batman. I did, um, a Tarzan game. Uh, they had licensed some like uh, uh, Disney stuff in general. I did a, a dancing game based on the Jungle Book. I think uh, I had a hand in like their Prince of Persia relaunch, um, oh, wow. The Sands of Time. I guess was, was what it was called. And then moved up to Montreal when they closed the New York studio. And um, shortly thereafter, they bought Tom Clancy's name, and so. There's this science fiction game we were working on that we then ported over that became Splinter Cell. Um, and they basically said, like, we need a third person, you know, action thriller in the Tom Clancy universe. And Tom Clancy's lawyer said it can have nothing to do with Jack Ryan. Um, so that was just all sort of like an original story inside of what the kind of Tom Clancy tone is. And then I guess about a year or two into being up in Montreal, um, that movie that I was had been trying to finish this whole time. I finally finished and it got into Sundance and that got me more work in movies. And ever since I've just sort of been bouncing between games and movies. Are your writing background just from film school? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I was always sort of writing like Thomas was always making video games, you know, like I, I'd, um, from whenever I could put pen to paper, I've been, writing stories and, and you know I, I was like every fucking film nerd you know who like would make movies in the backyard with an eight millimeter camera and all that sort of stuff and i think it was a very similar sort of process that like uh, uh to thomas in terms of just like i was always making movies and writing books and writing stories and eventually people sort of started to publish those and then you started to be like oh holy shit i have to polish these up if people are actually going to see them yeah. and then uh uh and yeah, just sort of keep doing it until somebody paid me. Was Tom Clancy's influence just in name only, or did he actually have any input? I mean, so so Tom Clancy didn't have any input on the first Splinter Cell, and and honestly, like that Jack Ryan thing is was sort of it. It was it was, it was like that. It had to be just for legal reasons outside of of the existing universes of Tom Clancy. So at the time, I think everything went through his lawyer and got approved. Um. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 he signed the checks, you know, and he bought a couple more tanks, I think. <laughs> uh, finally, what's your writing process like? Yeah, my writing process is, uh, is it's, it's very much like by getting the job where I just sort of, I went in and I applied for a job and got it. I, like, I, I, you just sit down and write. Um, I think for, you know, it's different depending on what the the medium is like obviously video games is a lot more collaborative than a book or, you know, um, but everything I do, I mean like the comics or the video games and the movies, it's, it's, it's usually in, it's with a group of people. So, you know, depending on what the game is, because, because there's also obviously like a giant difference between outlast and walking dead, right? Like, like one of them is 
is all about dialogue and narrative choices and repercussions of that, where Outlast is much more of sort of a, uh, sort of, it, it's, it's, it's just more of an experience than, you know, the story is important and I love crafting all that story stuff, but the story for Outlast is a much more solo experience than the Walking Dead creative process. But honestly, at a certain point, it just comes down to sitting down and doing it. Thomas, so I love the Frictional blog, and I think one of the first things I'd seen when I looked at it was the <coughs> post about the four layers narrative design process that you used. I think you started on Soma? Yeah, exactly. Could you explain what that process is? <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of, uh, like, I'm not sure. I, I think I need to get into, if that's okay, to, to get into some of the background a bit, because sure. it's... Uh, it's not just one of my sort of pet peeves when talking about story is that a lot of people, especially when you see um, academics or um, reviewers or critics and stuff like that, is that they take story for plot. Um, it's like, okay, what are the character arcs? Um, you know, what is the dialogue? And then they just skip out on like what's actually happening in the game a lot um there is a i can't recall his his name there's a danish um game developer shit why did i forget that who who has a who has a good essay on why games can't tell stories and 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 it's like like all other analogies with story it's it's based on star wars i'm not sure why everyone <laughs> loves star wars so much but i'm, I'm constantly it's like a you know a drinking game where I, when you're at gdc narrative summit or something like every time stars is mentioned you can um take a drink um <clears throat> But but in any case, he 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 like has this uh, essay why games can't tell stories, and I like totally agree with everything he says. It's just that I don't agree with that. Doesn't mean they can tell stories. He he basically just outlines the ways in which um, the games are not fit to tell a story. But I don't feel that's the same as they're not being able to tell a certain story. So. Um, the the four layers like came out of a lot of thinking on that, and there are two major foundational thoughts uh, on on all thing. And the first one is that the, as you play the game, a narrative is crafted. Like when I play Super Mario Three, and I go to one of Bowser's sky castles with uh, with cannons and like avoids the cannonballs coming at me and eventually take down one of his kids um that's a, a narrative like a story being told to me in game form like I'm, and and i feel that's incredibly important that we see it for that and, and especially it's like the same with outlast and those type of games i'm i mean i've also heard like always oh, outlast in thin on story but i mean the story in outlast is you being thrown in suddenly being thrown into a, a prison cell with all of these weird inmates around you talking weird stuff i mean that's the storytelling that's actually happening and i think that a lot of people are focusing on you know okay what's the dialogue or what's the background lore and stuff like that so that's one of the things and then the other thing is that again that story is not plot but that's for me i feel that story is best seen in games like a a sort of um a sort of group thing like like a, a substance that's everything all the storytelling draws from so story is stuff like the characters the setting the themes you want to get across the plot it's just one of the things and uh that's in the sort of story substance and then you also have stuff like the narration how the story is told like is it an unreliable narrator or whatnot 
And so, so, so that's a very big basics from it all. And then from that, you can sort of form an opinion on what, what good game storytelling is. And from my point of view, the important thing is that you actually get to play it. Like if you have a game where I constantly are reading notes, it might be in a game form or something like that. Something like Gun Home. Now I like Gun Home and all that. Um, and I think it's an important game and like very, very neatly designed in other ways, but I don't feel it's much of an interactive story in that sense of the word, because you know, the actions that I'm doing is not like telling a very interesting story in that sense. Um, so, so, so then the four layers approach is basically how do we get to interesting interactive story in, in, an, in, in a good manner? And there are some sequences in games that have this, what I feel is a very a nice sense of uh, interactive storytelling. So one, one scene is, for instance, the rough scene in The Last of Us, which I think is incredibly well done from a lot of uh, standpoints, but it's just uh, this. Sorry, the witch scene in Last of Us? The giraffe scene, you know, when uh, oh, um, yeah, L, giraffe. L, uh, giraffe. Yes. the giraffe, yeah. giraffe, sorry, yeah. um, <laughs> when when uh, Ellie is suddenly running away and you have to follow her, and you know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of the interaction that comes with the game, and you also have this sort of uh, mindset throughout the game. Well, like, shit, is this some danger? So there's tons of planning going on in your head. It's not just even if you're just following a path, you're constantly thinking, okay, what what weapon am I gonna draw and and stuff like that. So you're like um, really getting. Um, really get anxious that something bad is going to happen and then suddenly you have this sort of um, herd. I'm not sorry, sure it's a herd of giraffes? <laughs> giraffes? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, you call it that. And, and you see that then and there's a sort of climax that sort of goes against your expectation and then there's a really good storytelling in all of that. The problem is that all of these are extremely hard to create and they only work because you had like an hour or two hours, tons of hours of gameplay bef- happening before it that like um, shape shaped your responses and how you work with the game and, and stuff like that so the, the idea then is that you can't like solve interactive storytelling but just you know going at it you know, I'm going to have a storytelling scene it, it, it's too hard of a problem so instead you want to divide it like d- divide and conquer approach to it so you want to divide it into layers that you're going to do so so very Again, there's so much stuff here, um, but I'm going to try and be brief. So the first layer that you want to get across is that, first of all, you you need to think of your game as a sequence of scenes, and you want to think about, you know, what's the core gameplay in my scenes. So the games that uh, I'm I'm making, like, it's normally a puzzle or an enemy encounter, or, you know, an enemy encounter that is a puzzle or something like that. So then you want to think about a couple of things in that approach. So it, it needs to be coherent with your story sub. Um, it can't be too repetitive the entire like process. It has to have some sort of flow to it. It it, it can't it's some sort of streamlining to it. It can't just be obstacle ob- after obstacle uh, or, or some very abstract uh, exercise. So a bad example of this is in. Has anyone played a remake of uh, Broken Sword? Uh, no, no. no. There's a horrendous scene um, where there's a locked gate, and you know when you interact with 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 lock, you, you get a sliding puzzle <laughs> for no reason. I I hate sliding puzzles. It's, it's the worst thing ever. Um, and but apart from that, it's like why am I solving a sliding puzzle to open like a, a normal padlock? Um, it doesn't make any sense. There's no like story being told in the moment or whatever. But but that, the I, first that actually reminds me of the. 
Grim Fandango teaching you to actually how to pick a lock. Yeah. Oh, do you, yeah. Do you remember that where like you'd actually learn how all of the chambers turn? And I was like, holy shit. Like I, this like <laughs> makes sense in the story. And I've learned something new about it, opening locks with improvised tools. Yeah. But, but those sort of things are awesome. So, so, so that's the first layer. You have to make sure that everything fits. And I think that normally that's as far as games go. Like, like it fits with the game world. It's, it's some sort of streamlined and that's where we're going to stop. And that's where it's sort of for layers try and make this even more store like. So, the second layer that you, that you want to do is what's called narrative goal. And that means that you need to make sure that the player is not solving this puzzle for just, you know, because I want to get through the gate or whatever, but they need to solve it in order to uh, to do something, uh, you know, to get some narrative, uh, for, for narrative reasons is the right word. And... Um, the example that I always give is that, say, for instance, at, at layer one, you have a door you need to open, and you need to find a key in order to open uh, the door. Um, then in layer two, you can have a guy behind the door, and he's a mystery guy. Like, who is he? And you want to open the door in order to figure out who's this, who, the, who this mystery guy is. Um, so, so that's the, the second layer. Then the third layer is that you need to have some narrative background. So if you're picking a lock or whatever, you need to make sure that the player has some sort of story environment where all of this is happening and that they're fed story as they're going through with this. So again, in the example where you have to uh, unlock, to find a key and unlock the door in order to figure out who a mystery guy is, you can have clues about mystery guy as you try and find a key. The key could even be be an important object in the story of how who this mystery guy is and why he's there and stuff like that so then when you have your uh, narrative uh, background the, the last thing that, that you need to have is is the right mental model which is a bit trickier um, but 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 in essence what you need to learn there's, there's Brian Upton has anyone read the uh, what's it called anything else have it on my phone um, the aesthetics of play by Brian Upton everyone read that uh, no but I know about it Oh, okay, you, you should you, you should read it. It's really good. So 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 he has a patches in. I, I read it. I, I got a um, a preview version from him, and um, which we're thankful of because it's it's he has a patches in it, um, which says something like when a player travels through say a sewer system or something like that in a game, they're not just uh, doing that based upon the system, what the system is telling them. Because if they were, they would be bouncing along the walls and stuff like that, like trying out this where the system boundaries are. But what they're doing instead is that they have an intuitive understanding of what a sewer tunnel is. And based upon, you know, they're knowing what a sewer tunnel is and also having done uh, similar stuff in the game before so when they're navigating this tunnel and know that oh i can't go through walls and you know i'm, I'm gonna keep out of these spaces because they're too small i'm not gonna fit into them and they're gonna plan a path in the sewer tunnel and you know execute that path by walking through it so this was like a extremely big insight for me um, and I think it's a very deep thing about games that I haven't really thought about before and so the fourth layer is taking advantage of that and means that what you want with the player is that when they enter situations they should constantly have a mental model of them and like think ahead um, in, in ways that is, is feels like storytelling so the simplest example of this is in a horror game when you enter a new room 
there might be a monster or a ghost or something like that there. So the player is always going to evaluate the environment as if there might be a ghost and you're going to think about it in certain ways and you can have like hints around and stuff like that. So for instance, if the player is in a, a haunted house in a game and they hear, you know, a share fall over, there's going to be a very different reaction from that whether you're in a puzzle game because you know in a puzzle game you're going to oh this might be a clue for how the puzzle is solved whereas in a ghost game is uh oh the ghost might be here so the, it's important that you have this sort of mental model and that you constantly feed it and that the player constantly views the game system through this mental model and the mental model can change over the game and it doesn't have to be prevalent all of the time and so forth but in a scene like that you might want to have something uh, you want to have something like like that uh, in, in all of your scenes. And for instance, in the example scene then, is that the guy behind the door, he might be a vampire. Like some of the people you meet in the game are vampires and they're going to attack you. So when the player is opening, when they're trying to... Oh, the, the puzzle from the start was just open a door. But now we have the player rummaging through a, a room, trying to find a key, constantly trying to figure out who the mystery guy is. Because, you know, opening the door means they're going to reveal their identity. But they're constantly afraid that he might be a vampire. So, you know, they might want to leave the, the, the door alone after all. And the evidence, uh, the, the, the various stuff that they find around is gonna like be gathering evidence of who he really is in the end so this the whole system is that you're gonna travel between all of these layers and you don't have to it's not gonna be like a water flow process where you just go from one layer to the other and when you reach the the, the fourth one you're done it's gonna be you know, like okay now I got to do the narrative goal but the narrative goal doesn't really fit with how my puzzle is so I need to change it and you go back and forth a lot but it's a really helpful uh, process and and the whole thing came about uh, me having long email discussions with Adrian Himilash from uh, who made Painkiller and most recently uh, Ethan Carter um, and he used the system in, in his game and we used it a bit in Soma but I haven't designed a game from scratch using his approach it was something that we sort of both came up with while uh, doing our uh, respective games so um but it still was extremely helpful for certain for many situations and I think Soma um had a uh, a lot of the stuff wouldn't have been as nice as it was if we hadn't had this sort of uh, design flow to go after. I mean, I think it's also interesting thinking about how how your controller is is affecting the story. And it's the thing that like I usually end up arguing with game designers the most about is like how like like all of the examples that you talk about, like like you need a key to open a door. You know, it's all um, it's all very it's like that, that stuff happens all the time in games and, and it's impossible almost it's so rare to make a game where you don't have a door that you need to find a key for and that key can be whatever you know and choosing those keys is always like crazy important and interesting and it's what i liked about the telltale games is that like the keys to open doors was usually a character you had to sacrifice it's like you can kill danny or his mom and like that's and that choice is the action but but like underneath all of those sort of ingredients um I always come back to like the frustration of of basically pushing buttons to make the story go forward, which I feel often results in a lot of punching and kicking and jumping because those are all things that you push a button and you do. Yeah. And it's so much harder to find interactions where it feels like you're guiding this narrative forward in like a nonviolent pro narrative way. And I, and I don't have a solution for that. Like, I feel like there's like, there's a lot of interesting moments. Uh, like the, the valve is always really good at sort of pointing out the limitations of their own design. Like in, there's that moment in portal two where it's telling you to say Apple 
and you in the on-screen prompt says press A to say Apple, and every time you push it, you jump, and they're like, oh, you're <laughs> you're an idiot. Um, but like that, mo- it's like so clever. Like it's teaching you not to trust yourself and not to trust the voice that's guiding you, and kind of making fun of the own limitations of what you're doing. But I don't know. I mean, it, it's again, it's like I'm, I'm I'm offering up a problem without a solution towards it. <laughs> oh, um, <yeah. laughs> and I also think it's it's sort of interesting if you're just talking about like instructions for making narrative in a video game um, because it's so hard to pin down what a video game narrative should be. Yeah. And I don't think that that's unique to video games, right? Like like um, uh, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf is the polar opposite book of Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, right? Like uh, Cormac McCarthy never enters a character's head. It's all action. It's all description of this epic sh- stuff happening. Whereas To the Lighthouse, a woman sits in a room and thinks. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, everything she thinks. And they're both heartbreaking, brilliant books. But like the rules by which you would write each of those books is totally separate. And it's sort of something I, I don't know. I, I would hate to even try writing a book about writing stories for games because it's it's like every game you have to sit down and come up with a completely unique way to tell that specific story. Yeah. And I've had like similar, you know, emotional reactions like to to amnesia as to, I mean, I really liked, uh, gone home and I liked her story and, and feel like the interactivity was a key part of the emotional experience of that. And like walking into the attic in gone home, I think is like a really amazing moment. You could only get that from actually guiding yourself through that and, and taking those steps forward to see what it is. But I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I I don't want to get, get like, Saying that uh, Gun Home again, you know, <laughs> so we don't get into that. that Gun Home is a shitty narrative game or something like that. It's just <laughs> yeah, that from 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 yeah. from from my standpoint of you know what what what's in what direction would I like games from a narrative yeah. perspective to go in, and I see that as like what I don't want them to go. And you know, it's always a the discussion on this can be very. <laughs> You know, loud and 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 going the wrong direction. I've seen it uh, much times where, like, yeah, but this is a story and stuff like that. Like you say with the the different novels, like you know, a novel needs to have actions, otherwise it's not a story and stuff like that. And yeah. and for my part, it's always um, I, I don't I only see it like, what's the goal? What what are you trying to achieve here? And are you achieving that? Like like that's I think that's the main factor um, of it all. Like like in, in a game in, in in a movie like say Predator, which I think is a great movie. Like they're not trying to be deeply philosophical or anything like on you know man against nature or something like that. They just want to have like really beefed up dudes shooting big guns and and like that's it. And and you know that's a that's a goal. And you know there's a certain not just that like, again shit simplifying things too much perhaps, but um they they have a certain core idea that they want to have across and i think predator gets it across pretty well whereas i saw the first half of transformers 3 last night i'm not sure some of you might think is a good move but i I, like okay i I came here for big robots smashing each other like pacific rim or something like that but but you know it it it, it is like totally didn't like live up to that expectation uh, a bit and i think that's a sort of a failure of storytelling if you want big robots smashing each other you should have a certain storytelling that sort of gets that through to the audience um so um 
so, 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 so I think that structure and stuff like that is always like something you you should be very careful on having heated discussions on. Um, and I think that the, the, the thing that you want to discuss is like, okay, what was our goal with this, and um, did we achieve it or not? Yeah, and do you do you get that that experience? I mean, one of my favorite things about the Outlast games specifically is the level of interpretation from people who play it. And a lot of that, I think, is because a lot of the storytelling that we're doing is is sort of forensic, right? That like you're mm. like you're presented with environments where horrible things happened, and if you're looking at the art direction, like you can see, you can sort of piece it back together. And you know that's part of the game as well with all the emails and all that shit. It's very classic video game stuff. But um, but I, I do feel like there's an amount of of interpretation from people playing the game where they kind of change the story even in moments and like. You know, and that I actually encourage and really enjoy. Um, although, like, it, it does get to the point of, you know, people have found the names of characters whose names are not in the game from the code, yeah. um, <laughs> which I feel like is cheating. You know? but, yeah, that's totally cheating. But I was just saying, like, amnesia does have, have some wiggle room in interpretation, right? Like, like you can you can play with it in terms of how you're experiencing the story. Like, yeah. do, do you ever – do you read the comments? Yeah, I read too much comments. I think some <laughs> says there's a way way to. Hopefully, people don't uh, don't uh, fans don't listen to this much. No, I'm I'm reading way too much comments. But um, but yeah, I, I I think that's great, and that's also one of the great things with horror games. I think it was Richard Rouse who made The Suffering, who had a great um, essay on how horror games were very well suited for storytelling games because crazy shit can happen like yeah you can even have a bug like a character suddenly disappears like what the fuck happened there you know like i could totally be along with the story there um and, and stuff like that in in a horror game whereas if you have like a very serious drama or something like that like ian austin or something you, uh-huh. you're you're more constricted in how natural it all should feel and i think that's part again it's not the, the entire truth there's lots of other stuff but why horror games and shooter games are so common um, to tell stories through because you know they allow for a lot of crazy stuff to happen and you know it, it just goes along with the flow a lot um, and, and again that's a very level of interpretation there from the players like you know if, if they blow up some guy in an action game and you know it wasn't intended by the creators at all it can sort of make sense with the, the story that they're uh, imagining in their own heads and, and there's a I was just to, to to speak to the horror games as being good for narrative. There's an amazing book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover that's about uh, gender and horror in the 70s. Um, but a lot of what she talks about is what stories are sadistic and what stories are masochistic. Mm-hmm. And and the horror genre is so specifically masochistic, right? Like the more that you suffer, the better the horror experience is. And from a storytelling point of view, that gives you so many more opportunities to actually get across character and and world and and plot as well, because you are acting upon a character. Whereas, like if it's a sadistic story like Predator, where it's just about you know kill the alien, you're pulling the trigger the whole time. Yeah. It's, it's 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 there's not as much opportunity for narrative there. No, no, that, that that's that's a very good. Uh uh is a very good uh, point um and and i agree with that there's also another thing with uh, horror games which makes it good for uh for for video game storytelling is that a lot of horror stories is just people entering a building 
and then you know suffer from entering that building and <laughs> and you know like uh, the, the the haunting or something like that you just enter a building crazy shit happens and then they have to you know <laughs> just endure it in there and 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 i think that's very you know it 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 it's, it suits very well to how you do a video game because the player just have to go through an environment with stuff happening to them um and you know all of as you say a lot of the um, like character building comes from the player themselves as they're affected by the place in horror games are also in horror movies and and books i mean um the the protagonists of the book are very closely related um to the reader or viewer in a lot of ways like you suffer with them in ways that i'm not sure you do as much much in other genres like when you're spooked they're spooked and so forth Uh, they don't have to show emotions in order to convey um the scariness you're you're having the exact same physical reaction as the character if if it's like the ideal thing right like you're cringing and you're shouting and you're actually like any other genre if it's a comedy the person you're laughing at is not laughing you know where it stops being funny yeah, exactly. So there's so there's, so there's very there's a very good uh, overlap there, I think, in the storytelling with horror, and uh, why I also think that a lot of the good storytelling over the years have come from horror games, like Silent Hill, for instance. So. I mean, I'd I'd also argue just like in general, stories that last past their creators are kind of horror stories, right? Like Shakespeare's the 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 outlier, but if you're just talking about like general stories where like a culture died and we still have their story. You know, it's Beowulf, it's Moby Dick, it's mm-hmm. it's like we like monsters. Yeah, I mean the the first stories that you may have you ever heard kids telling stories? It's like <laughs> they're horror stories. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's 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 like you're you you're you're afraid when your kid starts making up stories. Like, where's this shit coming from? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I, I think it's very natural to us, and and I think there's it touches upon something very deep uh, within us. There's there's a lot of stuff that I like about horror, and I don't think it's just there, there's I mean there's obviously the whole getting back to the primitive like feeling fear is like interesting in and of itself but i also think it's uh, um i always see uh horror as closely related to comedy and you see there's a lot of good mashups between horror and comedy as well over the years and uh, in the same way like a comedian can bring up very taboo subjects a lot of horror movies go you know bring up a taboo subject but we're sort of okay with them doing it because it's in an environment where we're more like okay with uh, these sort of things brought up so um, I, th- I think that's uh, another important aspect of horror not related, I guess, to how it's good for video game storytelling, but it's just <laughs> one, well, one mean, of the reasons why I'm fascinated by it. I mean, it is it is an interesting question, though. I mean, like, but both of a lot of the games that we make are about suffering and about mm-hmm. like getting as uncomfortable as possible. And certainly, the, the Outlast games just roll around in taboo subjects and mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> make a point of it, right? Like. And it's weird. It's fucking weird. Like, and, and I want to, you know, we've, we've got people standing in line for hours at PAX to like try out uh, the, the game. And I'm like, why are you here? You know, like you <laughs> seem like, like healthy, happy people. You know, you could be out talking to girls or something, but no, it's like, it's, it's, it's a strange instinct, but I totally understand it. And I'm, I'm constantly like, 
you know, I've got that, that, that sort of addict's problem of loving horror and having to find a harder and harder version of that drug because it's not working <laughs> yeah. anymore. And that weird experience of like th- those, those stories that scared you so much that you go to as a comfort because you're so familiar with them now. You know, I could, I could, I could probably storyboard all of Texas Chainsaw 1974 shot for shot because I'm so familiar with it. It's just like, it's just like warm and cuddly to me now. And it's so hard to find like good, good new horror that gives you that weird masochistic experience you're looking for. VR. Yeah. It's, I mean, VR is an inch. Like, have you guys experienced some VR that you've, that you've liked outside of just demonstrating the experience of VR? I really like Super Hypercube. That's not a story-based game. No, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen any story-based stuff that I actually liked a lot. It's hard. I've seen like I've I've really enjoyed some filmed documentary like 360 video, yeah. and there's a lot of stuff that's that's just like an amazing demonstration of VR, but like actual VR storytelling, I, it seems like it's it's miles away. I mean, it's we're we're getting off topic, but I do feel like VR is is at this moment sort of a screen waiting for a medium, yeah. right? Like like everything that we're talking about here, like long form video games, are a result of uh, televisions in the home, right? Like, like it's, uh, and nobody selling televisions in 1960 could imagine that that would lead eventually to the last of us and, and video games in the seventies, you know, it's like arcade games and it's, it's a four minute experience, you know, that then evolves by having a screen in a home into long form video game storytelling. So I feel like there's gotta be some sort of leap there. I mean, the, the one thing is just sort of conceptually, like what a narrative in VR is going to be. Uh, I think the control scheme is going to be huge in terms yeah. of how you you interact with it, and then like the, all the VR stuff I'm working on, such a giant part of the conversation is just like how you navigate this space and what this space is. Yeah. Um, we'll see how that new Resident Evil turns out. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? That's like the biggest budget story based game coming out for VR, but wasn't designed. It's not designed purely for VR because you can play without it. So I don't know how much. Yeah, no, and I'm, I mean, the, the folks that I'm talking to about VR stuff, I feel like it's got to be divorced from the traditional screen version because it's just so different. Yeah. I mean, I did a thing for Samsung last year that was a 360 video and, and it was very close to a movie in a lot of ways, but just the differences of having that sphere to tell the story in and a little bit of navigation. Um, it, it was just, it was a completely different kind of storytelling. Uh, Thomas, did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too long into VR, but it's sort of like I like talking about, <laughs> about it a bit. It's sort of it's sort of a love hate uh, relationship with VR. Um, like like one thing that I love about it is that it's the media attention to like really long problems in video games is, is really interesting. For instance, I read an article in Scientific American where you're like, you know, VR movies are never take off because you can't get the, the audience to focus on the on what's happening in the story. And like, you know, oh, we're, we're, you know, we've actually have stuff for this since the, you know, early 90s in video games that addresses these problems. But, you know, 25 years later and, you know, all of a sudden people are trying to, to actually like, uh, uh, you know, coming up with these problems again. I heard from... Uh, um, I think it was Clara from uh, New York University, and she said she was on some seminar with VR, and they're like, you know, the viewer can look wherever they want to. This is totally new territory. You know? <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> come on, you know, it's, it's not new territory. Um, there's there's a bunch of stuff, and I, and I feel like uh, you know it's gonna be very interesting. I think that that a lot of 
uh, talent from movies like Pixar or whatnot are going to get their eyes open to video games in a way that I don't think they had um, previously. So so that's uh, one of the things that I am actually very excited about in terms of VR. But also I'm sort of wondering a bit why. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not like when we talk about storytelling in VR and stuff like that, it's not like, oh, now you have a VR helmet. Now we can make like you know, whatever great movie you can think of that you want to have in an interactive format. Now is the time. No, it's just going to make things even harder. We don't know even know how to move properly in VR yet. Like, there's tons of technical issues that are not solved. And, like, from my perspective, it feels like a lot of talent might be focusing in on the wrong things, like they're led astray by VR. Like, folks, when we have, like, we've built, I think we've built up so much in terms of the basic knowledge in video games that we're, we're, we can like take, take the step forward now but then VR comes and like sucks up all narrative uh, a lot of narrative uh, talent at least um, and uh, and like put them to work at that instead and so, so, I, was, so I was sort of uh, uh, depressed actually by the state of that and I felt like you know it would be more interesting if someone just opened up to you know video games like we can actually do we're at the point now where we have so much knowledge that we can actually push it forward by quite a bit if if people are just you know set to focus on it and i'm I'm not really seeing that happening at this this point at least i mean I think with video games specifically, the most exciting thing about v r to me is is that it it is removing at least several layers of controller between the player and the experience. Um, and, and all the issues of navigation and all that stuff that you're talking about are like, absolutely like, and it's, and it's, and anybody who says that they've got the answer now is, you know, a carnival barker, but, but just, just the fact that you are turning your head around instead of using a mouse to turn it around, I think has a kind of phenomenally huge impact on the narrative experience and turning your head with a mouse is a twitchy, violent experience. That's great for first person shooters. In a VR experience, that is moving at that speed is totally fucking nauseating and horrible. But at the same time, like my experience of VR so far, like I've uh, that that feeling of presence makes me much more empathetic than I am in a video game. Yeah. Where like I I do not enjoy violence in VR as much as I enjoy violence in any other medium because, and, and it might just be the newness of it, but it, it, I just do feel more present and guilty and and gross for being there. Whereas, like, actual, like, sort of quiet human experiences I really enjoy in VR. Hmm. But what's and, the difference? Yeah, sorry, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, but I mean, so I just sort of, but the the basic point, though, like, the difference, I think, is is really, it's, again, like, those, the trying to get the controller as far away from the player's experience as possible. And and there's all this idea now of, like, you know, tracking your hands and, and that sort of stuff and just moving your body around inside of it. But But I think that the... If, if we can make it less about pushing buttons, we are going to get better stories. Might be the simplest way to say it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The sort of the, the interactions in uh, VR is is gonna is gonna push it because you can't have like because shooting at least you know moving around and shooting is is much more problematic than what it is in in a normal computer game, and you want to yeah. get away from those sort of things. And and you know that sort of thinking can push it in other ways as well. So so. 
the view that I painted up is 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 not perhaps as depressive as you know as negative <laughs> as it needs to be. Uh, so, but 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 still, I'm I'm sort of when you say more empathetic and stuff like that, I'm sort of like you know, it's not not the same as you know because the. Uh, the polygon count is more is higher or more empathetic to the to the creature uh, to the to, you know to the humans and stuff like that so i'm i'm a bit i'm a bit very about uh, um the early promises of it but but i might be like totally wrong here but that's uh, sort of my uh, opinion of it i'm, I'm a it's bit a, of a vr skeptic i guess yeah i mean i'm uh honestly if if if, if i had a uh magic if, if I had magic powers, I would just go to 1976 and make movies on film. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, like, I, and the, that's like probably what's closest to my heart. But I also just, um, it's ha- have had so many of like really deep emotional narrative experiences with video games, you know, and, and with yeah. like, and, and it's always in those things where it's, it's like doing something new and finding some way to tell a story. Um, I, I it is interesting to me. Well, I don't know if that's true. I was going to say that, like in in video games, it's 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 funny how hard it is to repeat an emotional experience like that. Like it, like with the Telltale games. I mean, obviously, I worked on them, and I really I enjoyed a lot all of them. But the format becomes familiar enough that the emotional narrative experience gets less fulfilling. Yeah, which is a really interesting thing. Like because I, I couldn't be more familiar with the format of film or TV. But you use the same tools and tell another story, and I'm totally on board. Whereas I get to like, you know, my my third or fourth Telltale game in a row, and and I'm probably costing myself jobs in the future now. But it's like I need to play a different kind <laughs> of game because I want to have a different uh, interactive experience around mm. the the narrative. Yeah, I wonder if that's not because you're you're making a mental model again. Just going back to that word on the systemic. Behind like the systems that are fueling it all, while in a movie that doesn't matter as much. Um, you know, if you know your scenes and arcs and whatnot, it doesn't matter as much if you know them because they're not going to take away from the experience. Whereas if you know in a Telltale game that you know this character is going to survive no matter what I do, you know, there's there, there's not going to be a hundred different sure. endings. There's going to be two different endings and stuff like that. I, I think this doser stuff that's like gets to you in a way. Um, and I think that's also, again, where, where a lot of the like, like big problems lie in, in video game is the storytelling, like how, what sort of, uh, what sort of systems can we use that are more like like more not immune but like more can can take that sort of repetition a lot better than something like a telekin games you know you're always going to have like in it's always going to be fake like movies are fake and stuff like that is is fake but it, there's just something about it that that makes you believe it all and it's weird yeah. like how little it can take cuz I, I know i'm not sure I, I saw some movie on Blu-ray, and it felt like video footage. I can't remember. It was some... Uh, never mind. It was, it was X-Men movies. It was. And and, it, and suddenly, like, the emotional impact was lower because it felt like video. Why should that matter? Like, if I have my film grainy screen, like, f- 25, uh, 24 FPS uh, frames per second and so on, then it feels more real to me than, like, when it's too high quality. And it's very oh, interesting, yeah. I guess, b- because a lot of it all depends on us being in a certain state like the magic circle is the sort of uh, um, video game
game terminology and and you have to make sure that your audience is with you on that um, and I guess again with the telltale games it can it can be hard because you're training them to to play the games in a specific way and as they're doing it they're like going more in a systems view they're not seeing the story for the story in some some way there's like they're removing the film grain or whatever makes a movie magical and then re and real seeming to us it's a very i, I find that's just a, one of the subjects i find extremely fascinating with storytelling like why do we care at all <laughs> yeah yeah no and actually the the mess of things like i remember the first time i saw nightmare on elm street on blu-ray after having like i was so so instinctively familiar with like a beaten up old vhs copy and it's not scary if it's not on vhs <laughs> like, <it broke> my <laughs> heart yeah but same, it's same with uh i played uh, silent hill the first one on P ps1 and they have mm -hmm. this really first of all their their texture projection is not like correct so it gets very blocky and weird like warped um <laughs> very easily yeah. and and when an enemies emerge they emerge like pixel by pixel so you have like a blur of pixels coming out of the shadows and that was just like really terrifying to me and then i played later on on my um pc i uh, used the same disc on an emulator and suddenly had like high def and was like shit this is not scary like <laughs> give yeah. me my pixels um so 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 very interesting there in like what uh, what sort of you know when when high fidelity gives you less of an experience i i guess that in silent hill you can see the you know the, the crappy characters and all of that uh, better and the pixelated stuff hides it a bit but i'm i'm not sure it's it's just that it's it's just there are a certain things um in how you get her approach. It certainly has to be polished for its format. Yeah. Right. And like the character design of Silent Hill is so brilliant for having low resolution because so much of what you're looking at is just wrong. Hmm. And, and it has like what you were talking about earlier, Thomas, the whole idea of like horror being more forgiving of tech glitches because you're, you're like, Oh, is that, is that glitch in my head or does that guy have a pyramid for a head? You yeah. know, it's like, it's, it's, it gives you that wiggle room. Yeah, and 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 it's super good in the first something. Like I I I truly love the first Silent Hill, um, for many reasons, but also the sort of yeah. world swapping because you're constantly like, is this real or you know is is he dreaming now? Like how should I approach it? And and since you have to play it, that there's a very interesting dynamic going on there between you as a player and you exploring the, the story because you have to take actions and you have to judge the world yeah. i think in a different way in what you had to do when watching a movie because in a movie can you just yeah, okay i don't know how, how this works i'm just gonna you know lean back and see how it unfolds but you have to take actions in a silent hill game you have to figure out what way am i heading where where do i need to go what do i need to do and you know a lot of that has to do with you know how the world world is built up what's the logic of the world and stuff like that so absolutely um, no, and the the actions that they make you take in silent hill are really interesting in terms of building your character in that world like the first silent hill is that's the one that starts with when you walk into town all those little like toddlers come and stab you with tiny knives hmm. until you kill not them in the not axe. in europe they're they're <laughs> in the european <laughs> version they're actually censored so we had uh, we have teddy bears instead <laughs> but teddy I bears? are you serious yeah, 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 yeah. oh that's hilarious <laughs> um well in, in america yeah. where you can fucking kill anything you want um do you still have the fire axe though that you have to kill the teddy bears with because that's i mean I, it's it's been 15 years since I've played this game, but yeah, I remember that as a moment yes. where like, 
in America, at least, you're being stabbed by these little toddler-looking things. You know, it's low resolution. You can't really tell what they are. But you do have this fire axe, and they will kill you eventually very slowly in this insanely annoying way. But you also, you're like, I really don't want a fire axe toddler. <laughs> uh, but, but you have to because – and that's like always the power that you have in a video game. It's like you mm. cannot proceed until you fire axe some toddlers. Yes. And then like now you're that guy. And if you saw somebody do that in a movie, you'd be like, oh, okay, I've checked out because nobody would do that. Hmm. But if because you're in the game, you're like, well, I guess I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's like method acting. Yeah, and I think also the core to pulling something like that off is that the game is not forcing you to do it either. You're just doing, you're making that plan yourself. Like toddlers around me, what do I have? I have a fire axe. Okay, I need to get out of the room. What's the best yeah. way to get out of the room? I need to use, okay, should I really be, and, and you're know, like, what? what's the alternative here? And, you know, I, I think that's uh, one of the best ways to design games. And just another game that does this extremely well is... Uh, is, uh, is spec ops the line um, with their moral actions because you never know like what you what you might be able to do like there's this situation where there are two people hanging and you can like choose who who to save but you can yeah. also shoot the snipers and like what's what's the best action here it's not like just pressing A or B like even though I. The, it's 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 walking that has to do it because of the format, but and then you know there's they do all, all sort of other cool things with it, but um but I, but I there was just something about this sort of analog choices there where you're not sure about you know what's my what's my space of actions here like could I really do could I turn around here and and when you then get the, the player to do certain stuff from that so. Can I do some spoilers of Spec Ops, or is that? So yeah, it's the old game right now. Um, but there's a scene in Spec Ops that's just uh, awesome, where you have a crowd that's angry at you and starts throwing stones at you, and and you're like your only interaction, as you said again, why can't you do stuff without uh, shooting? You only have that, but they use that interaction like in a perfect way, and you just have you just have your gun. The only thing you can do is shoot stuff. Um, so so you can just shoot the crowd and you know some of them will die and they will run off and you know you'll get out of the situation but you could just fire into the air and knowing like learning about what oh oh you know that scene where you just you know shot a lot of uh, civilians you know that was weird you know you shot them you didn't shoot into the air what sort of idiot are you like wow you know it's it's sort of i don't think you you wouldn't have get that sort of response if it was like a or b like shoot in the air or shoot civilians but now you're like you're standing there you're time pressured like what am i gonna do and that's like brilliant sort of uh storytelling going on there i think as long as we're talking about combat since like Outlast has no combat and Amnesia and so on don't have combat, I ask both of you, like, why is lack of combat important for you? And like, is it better for horror games to not have weapons or combat? Who should I mean, answer? Yeah, it could be you to go. <laughs> I mean, I'll, 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 I, I can answer, I guess, because like I, I had that idea pitched to me, right? Like, like the Red Rails guys came to me and they're like, "Yeah, we want to do a horror game," uh, and I was like, oh, "Okay," and they're like, "And you, you never can fight back," and I was like, "Oh, I'm totally in." And at least from my point of view, it just means it, it means that you, you, number one, you're taking away a layer of, of control from the player, which again, like I, I get hung up on pushing buttons and like I did, it, it feels, it, it always is a step removed from the actual narrative. Yeah. Uh, 
Number two, I think it's so much more realistic for how 99% of people are going to be in a horrific situation. Um, And then number three, like I I do think that uh, violence is often anti-story. And even in like a movie like Predator that is about the most muscly people in the world with the best American weapons you can buy killing one alien, um, they really don't start shooting back, you know, until the aliens really had some time to kill them. And the more time that you've got for the alien to kill the guys, the more character and story you're revealing. You know, even in like Splinter Cell, which is very explicitly like a Tom Clancy, let's go shoot foreigners for American freedom game. We were always trying as hard as possible to make as much a a possibility of stealth. And from my point of view, if you're sneaking past somebody, you're going to find out things about them. And we'd always, you know, write dialogue about like, you know, people's personal lives. And I would try to make you feel as shitty as possible about (laughs) killing foreigners if you took the time to listen to them, you know, and that, that they would have their own little dramas and their kids at home and whatever it is, because, because it's a story then, you know, and, um, so yeah. And, and I just think it's scarier, you know, as soon as you start fighting back, you're in the third act. Yeah. And if, and if fighting back is the focus of the game, you're in your third act, the whole game. Yeah. I, I totally agree. There's a ton. We saw, we had combat in our, first game Penumbra Overture because you know you, you usually have some sort of combat and our our idea was that people should just be able to have some really crappy weapons like we had a broom and a hammer and we thought you know people would never use them uh, a lot but you know we underestimated how people play games <laughs> and they figured out way of you know of killing all of the people uh, all of the creatures in the game by just using a broom and a hammer and um, you know you actually get a pickaxe later on but it's it's, it's large and clumsy and very hard to handle um, but but I think that you know people what 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 a gun does is that it defines the game you're playing like like in in games the character you're playing is defined by their actions like if you're playing a Sherlock Holmes game, you're going to be able to investigate stuff because that's what Sherlock Holmes does. He can't go around just um, just shooting people, even if he does that a bit. In the in the stories, that's really not the sort of what defines Sherlock Holmes as a character. And in the same way, if you're playing a horror game and if you have a gun like weapons, suddenly you're the weapons guy, and you know you're not the character that you're supposed to be in a horror story. And and it's very hard to just have a little bit of weapons in in a horror game as well because you have to have trained a player in combat mechanics and stuff like that and the player gets like if you if you have weapons a bit the player is gonna know how to use them enough for you know trying to get buy in the game by using them like with melee weapons or whatnot um and we saw when when we made a step from not having weapons we also saw a very different attitude to players and and i think that one of the reasons is that when we're playing a game you have like a a very specific amount of focus you can use for the game like like you can if you're playing a shooter you're going to be thinking about okay what's my ammo level what weapon should i have drawn like should i reload should i use a grenade here you know what should i target and stuff like that and that's going to drain yourself out of a lot of other stuff that you can do so if you're just hearing a you know a spooky sound or something like that that's not going to affect you as much because you know you have other things to focus on why should i worry about the share falling over like i'm, I'm more gonna worry about you know when i can actually see my enemy but in a game like amnesia and in outlast you're basically in a sensory deprivation tank you, you you're not really getting any 
feedback on stuff you can do and so anything that gets given to you is there like a glimpse of a shadow or a sound or you know just a glitch or whatever you're gonna like take that to heart and like use that like okay what's my next move gonna be i heard a sound over there and stuff like that so it's very important for the players to to have that in order to have that sort of, sort of oversensitivity which you know it's going to startle them and uh, and and give that uh, good sense of horror experience i'm guessing like it's the same thing like try watching a horror movie and twittering at the same time it's not going to be a scare because part of your focus is going to be on writing a message and stuff like that so um it's, it's, it's having making sure that you have all the actions that you have in your game goes forward a certain kind of experience is incredibly important than just having a shooter is gonna um inside a horror is, is, is gonna deprive the player of that yeah totally no if you're in a shooter you're like a hammer looking for nails yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> would silent hill be better without combat I mean, with the, I, I would almost say no just because of the example I gave of, of forcing you to kill yeah. people horribly. And and Silent Hill narratively is kind of more of a noir than a horror, really. It's like revealing your horrible past, which, um, you know, we get into as well. But, like, um, but yeah, I mean, the first Silent Hill, I, like, totally worked for me. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Thomas? Yeah, I think it's sort of, it, it's hard to say, oh, would, would we better without combat? Because if you just remove the combat in the game as is, you know, you're not gonna, there's a ton of mechanics that are built around the combat. And I thought it worked pretty well in the first one, because the enemies, you, you were better off avoiding most of them. So they actually had a pretty good combat system. Um in in the game and you know there was this sort of like the melee combat was like oh i'm just gonna swing the weapon and hope for the best sort of thing it wasn't like a really good combat system like something in condemned a game like that um and but on on the other hand i mean you you could you could you could make a it could possibly be better. It, it's very hard. It's very hard to say. I, I'm feeling that you could focus on other stuff and, and and so forth. But I do feel that the second one could really be better without the combat because I didn't like the combat at all in uh, the second cell till apart from uh, um, like your your encounters with Pyramid Head and some other of the more um, dangerous creatures because I was basically just running around that uh, that game uh, taking down mannequin monsters with a wooden plank all of the time it wasn't scary like they were just you know moving around and i was just you know i have nothing to do right now so why don't i bash on mannequin heads and <laughs> so um so so, so in that game i, I felt like uh, they they could have uh, done something else and they had a lot of other interesting things happen that could make up for the lack of combat but i guess that a lot of it is uh, it's it's video game tradition that is holding a lot of those things back and just some you said again with uh, the splinter cells that you have so much combat leading up to this stuff and i'm my sort of thinking is it's not so much the combat that is wrong with it all but it's just that the combat is just there because we need to have combat in our games it's not like oh we need to have put combat in here because it's gonna it's gonna make the storytelling better or it's gonna define the characters better or you know it's gonna give a better sense of place it's just there because you know we we need to make a 15 hour game or whatever and we sure. you know the only way to pad that is to have enemy encounters that's you know that lasts a certain length and has a certain frequency so a lot of decisions well, it's come not from just that. filling the time right because there's also yeah. that's the pleasure of the game yeah yeah exactly yes so, so I'm not gonna but but from a 
a narrative, pure narrative standpoint. So obviously, you know, that's that's saying like Mario would be better off without you stomping on on, mm-hmm. uh, on creatures' heads. But you know, from a narrative standpoint, and again, I think that that sort of thinking bleeds like like in Doom, obviously. So to to have a, like a pure example, like having a lot of shooting is what makes the game. You know, wouldn't be a game without shooting a lot of stuff. But that sort of thinking bleeds into. A lot of stuff like Silent Hill, uh, uh, like the Silent Hill games, where do you where do you think about? Okay, so what's our core activity? Our core activity is yeah. shooting, and therefore they just build around having a certain amount of combat encounters, and do not really think about them as you know what is the, again as I said early on, like what's our goal? What what are we trying to achieve with this experience? Um, and they're like, don't ask themselves if it's good or bad, but it's like. With combat, I think that especially for, for I don't think it's until very recently that it hasn't been like an um, a dogma that no one has really uh, tried tried to have deeper discussions about. Um, but but you know you, you just have your shooting and and it's like cuts in a movie. You're, you're, you know you're, you're gonna cut cut from time to time and, and and stuff like that. And you're gonna have your combat from time to time because otherwise it wouldn't be a game. And and nothing really said nothing really recently. You've uh, <clears throat> you've you've made games that try and go against it. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, I said it before, but I think that so much of the combat just comes from pushing buttons, yeah. and that, that those are actions that map really well to buttons. Yeah. And and conversation, which is like so much of the basis of most other narratives, is really hard to do in video games. You know, without just like something that illustrates how false it is. I want to go into that, but I want to switch to the next question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, for both of you, do you think that what you what you've learned with horror translates well to other genres, or has anything that you've learned translate uh, well? Other genres or other mediums? So genres genres of video games. Other genres of video games. Yeah. Um, man, it's been so long since I've written a video game in another genre. Um, do you think it could? Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, the horror specific stuff, uh, I will say, you know, and, and, and to go back to another, another example of like the lighthouse to the lighthouse, the, the Virginia Woolf book, that's a very masochistic book as well, right? Like it's about suffering, but it's about emotional suffering. But, um, certainly like, I would try to apply the same techniques of masochism to another genre, but really I, it's, I'm actually like trying to imagine what another genre you're talking about. If, if I was going to write something like gone home or another cell. Yeah. I think there's lessons that would carry over. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Well, Thomas, you, Richard's doing two games now that they've like, they're not saying what they are, but one of them is not a horror game, right? Mm-hmm. Have you, like, have you, are you taking things you've learned? Like, are there things that surprised you that you learned making Amnesia and Penumbra? And yeah, I mean, I mean, Soma is not like a pure horror game either. It's more of a sci-fi game, right? Um, yeah. I know, I know that from angry reviews saying that it's not a horror game. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, but uh, it's 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 interesting. First of all, I think that I mean, Gone Home is is taking horror game learnings from horror games and, and making a teen drama out of it so uh, i think that you can you can really like it's just it's the entire game is set up like a horror mystery almost like they even have like you know the, the spooky call at the, at the start yeah. of the game and stuff like that so it's that game i'd say is, is, is something and, and there's there's probably more um games that can do a similar thing but when we made soma i mean soma was is is more of like like what we did 
our, our focus with Soma was not scaring people. Our focus with Soma was from very early on that we're going to try and talk about some philosophical subjects regarding consciousness, and we want to do it from a, a first-person point of view. And uh, like taking things we learned from horror, how can we achieve that? So that's sort of our, our basis uh, for, for, for making Soma. And I think that a lot of them the most basic thing that we learned from it and, and uh, put upon it, it was that if you, the sort of sensory deprivation stuff, like if you give the player room, they're going to pay attention to small details and they're going to make stories out of it. So my sort of favorite example is from, uh, I saw one game playing um, amnesia and he was constantly hiding in closets because you know there might come a monster so if i like try and 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 better my hiding in closet techniques um like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna play the game better you know it's gonna i, I need to do this so it was pretty funny i think he it's also a, a good example of how trail trailers and stuff influence how people approach your game but in any case, it's, it's, it's hilarious because he's constantly having like a narration with himself on where the monsters might be and where he should be hiding. And I really took this Let's Play through heart. I can't recall what the Let's Play was, um, unfortunately. But I just thought that shit wouldn't be cool if someone played a game with this sort of reaction just wondering about minute details and making a story and doing actions but not doing that trying to escape some monster but trying to do that when uh, you know faced with hard philosophical choices and stuff like that so uh, a lot of soma was born out of that like how can we uh, how how can we how can we make the player feel about feel feel the same way about uh, our our subjects that we want to um uh, like uh, sprinkle on them um in the same manner that they, they thought about our horror themes um and and there's a bunch of stuff that we sort of learned there in terms of how you pace the story how you relay information to the player and so forth I will say that Soma gave me the most unsettling moment of a game I played this year. It was just from, it was not a main story, but it was just something off the beaten path where I just discovered randomly, and then I did something, and I, I felt terrible about it in the next couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to hear it's sort of it's it's very it's very fun making games where, where you have very lots of negative words from <laughs> coming from someone and it's a positive comment uh, uh, so uh, I saw some we had some really good refund notes on on steam as well from the game where we're really like saying you know this is this is not a fun game like I yeah <laughs> I, I had yeah, when you do the retail version those should yeah. be the quotes on the front yeah, yeah exactly was fun. was not <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but but that's pretty fun um but 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 again it's uh you know there, there's a lot to be learned from horror and i think that um the the player can actually one of the another sort of thing that's is just a bit fuzzier i guess but one of the things that i like about unarmed uh, horror is that players are constantly 
unsure how they're going to approach when when some danger might be there. So if you have a game like um, Dead Space, which I, I liked it, the first one, especially in the second one too, uh, quite a bit. Um, but in those games, when you, when you know there's a danger near you, there's just a, a question of how much ammunition do I have? Like, like you have your tools set. You just, you, you, it's just about tactics, basically. But in, in a horror game, you, you're like, shit, someone might come after me i'm i'm not sure what to do here like should i hide should i run like is there like a puzzle i could solve it, it's it's a very open space and it it's, it brings about a certain nervousness to the players and it also makes them think about their environment in a way that they wouldn't have done otherwise um i remember like playing um uh, it's the, the retail version of, or not the, the sort of commercial version of Slender. And, and they have like, it's, I mean, it's not, there's not a lot of good graphics in it and stuff like that, but, but because of what I know about the Slenderman and because of really good ambience in that game, I'm constantly looking like in my environment through for signs of him for, for the monster to be enclosed. And could I close a door here? Could I close a window? Perhaps I shouldn't be looking at him so much. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going through my head all of the time and I'm evaluating the environment. Um, like, I'm, I'm really looking at the details there and, and trying to think of something. Whereas if, if I play a game like Uncharted, for instance, I can go through these gorgeous, like extremely detailed and amazing environments. And I'm like, you know, passing through, <laughs> and, yeah. um, you, you know, I'm going to shoot some bad guys. I don't really think about them as much. And, and But in a horror game, you're like, you really take note of what's in your environment and how that uh, might, you know, think about that before you open the next door and try and like bring all that into the same fantasy that you have of uh, um, of what the game is all about. So that's something that I think if there's something that I would like to more people to be influenced by and learn from, it's that from horror games. Do you think that like that's really effective but only is effective for like a few hours until the player gets to know the triggers and the way those uh, moments are spread out and activated? So this is one of the like hardest thing with the horror because obviously if you just have the same tricks over and over again the people are going to know and and the same thing that we talked about with uh, the walking dead like it, we, once you've played through your two your three or four telltale games you have a pretty solid understanding of the inner workings i mean you can still enjoy them but i don't think you're gonna have the same it's they're not gonna have the same emotional impact like the first game had so the same thing that you're faced with with horror and you just have to up your game and think about the various ways of keeping the the player on their toes like if if they know that if you have a monster the same monster appearing behind every single door obviously the player is not gonna notice a lot in the environments because players are you, you can as a designer it's it's good to think about players as lazy if there's an optimal strategy that are going to make them complete the game and no matter how bad that experience is for the gameplay experience they're going to go for it so it's it's important to make sure that you can't optimize their path through the game as easily and, and that's something that you have to try with uh, with monsters. You have to try and have new horrors for them and stuff like that. So, so again, I think Outlast 
does a very good job at that um, in that it's five hours long it's, it's i mean the surprises last pretty much the whole experience and i can feel a lot of fear whereas in a game like alien isolation that lasts for 15 hours like i'm pretty used how the alien moves and like i'm not yeah. going to be shocked getting eaten anymore because i've seen that animation 10 times already um so so there's those sort of stuff you have to think about more when making a horror game. But I think that's also when you're making a sto- storytelling all the time. If you just try and like keep the th- same three things happening over and over again, it's going to be cliches and the audience is not going to be very interested in your story. Yeah, it applies to every genre, really. Mm. I mean, like The Revenant, every individual scene of that movie is amazing. And, you know, four hours into it, I'm just like, oh, Jesus Christ, just kill him, you know, <laughs> give him the Oscar, you know, like, or and say that you read Wuthering Heights and it's just like, yeah, Heathcliff's an asshole. I get it, you know, yeah. but then you've still got, you know, another hundred pages or whatever. Like it, it's just whatever your genre is, you just have to sort of keep, keep tw- twisting it. Yeah. And certainly with Outlast, I think a lot of what we were trying to do was to sort of make it about the personalities of the enemies. And, and a lot of, I think that's a lot of what's connected with players is sort of these characters and, and like what they're, what they're, how they escape comes from who these people are. And having to pay attention to these horrible piece of shit people. Yeah, it's interesting that like the more successful games, or maybe critically successful games, the last like ten years have just been ones that have been more focused on being shorter experiences, like Journey or like Limbo and Inside, yeah. which I haven't played yet, but everyone says it's amazing. Well, it's also because like you, you could get more reviewers to play them because yeah, they're only three hours. <laughs> well, they don't, we're not getting tired by mechanics or. Yeah. Well, certainly, like, I have zero patience for RPGs. Uh And a lot of it is just because it is so systemic and so long. And even stuff that gets more narrative, like the Fallout series or whatever, like, there's so much good stuff there. And I just don't have the patience to build that. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting way of looking. Obviously, some people love RPG stories. And I I, I played quite a bit of Planescape and I played when I was younger I played like Final Fantasy for hundreds of hours and stuff like that but um, one of the things with storytelling perhaps not so much in in those games but I think it's more of of in action games um, is that it's so fun playing the game like like if I'm if, if I like shooting people in games I can play 20 hours of that And, and, and it's pretty easy to set up permutations of like in splinter cell and something like that we we like to sneak up on people and you can always do something some tiny detail different in a scene and it's wow okay i'm gonna use new strategy here and you know i'm gonna do this differently oh you know i'd only have i have this weapon now and so forth so you can constantly make the experience interesting by pretty like relatively uh, simple means whereas then keeping up the story interesting, like because you're making gameplay, you, you can make it for like just you, you, you can make like twenty hours. It's not relative. It, it's relatively easy to make twenty hours of good gameplay. Like I'm just throwing out numbers. It's obviously not that easy, but but yeah. still. Um, but then you have those twenty hours, and you're saying to the, to the writer, okay, now we need to have story that's equally interesting for twenty hours, and like, oh yeah, that that that's gonna be very 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 much harder and, and what do you got to work with well you got a you got a protagonist that's doing the same thing over and over again for 20 hours <laughs> it's, it's, it's like if you encounter good storytelling in in those games like the writers had to be amazing because you know it, it's their their limitations of what you're trying to work in is very very hard and i think that 
one of the things like paradoxically one of the worst things for games storytelling wise is that they're so damn fun to play and um, if you go if you see movies like the first movies that came out like train to tunnel or man sneezes like those are boring as shit now no one would go and you know to a movie and they're like oh we're gonna show this classic now and everyone's like what fuck is this like it's just a train through a tunnel this is boring um whereas someone can go and play like space in you know pong or something like i played pong um uh, er, er, last year um last year at uh, no this year at, at gdc they're sort of they have an exhibition in in, in san francisco where they all these class games and it's still fun like it's the first arcade cabinet yeah. and it's still fun like and, and then i viewed the first movie cabinets and i'm like what the fuck is this this, this is boring it's like there was something called execution they had like a a guy getting his head chopped off like marionettes in nothing like yeah, it, was it wasn't very fun um so 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 i think there's a in in video games that from the beginning you already had a formula you have you, you haven't really had a forces that 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 requires the storytelling to be extremely solid in order to captivate the audience um as in the way in the same way that you had with movies again in scientific american had like an, a very interesting an article they had these they have this in every number they have like throwback to older American scientific american because the, the paper has existed for like 150 years or so so they had like an article from i think it was 19 five or something like that and it was like oh the movie business viewers are getting tired of of, of the movies we're showing they need writers <laughs> or something yeah. like that and it's like wow this is sort of like in in, in video games but you know a hundred years earlier um so so and, and i think that the pressure then on actually getting good storytelling and you know all of the the things that they um that you established during the birth of film um was extremely important in order for people to keep their interest up whereas the the same thing hasn't really been through um, for games. It's more like the spectacle has increased in order to you know, outcompete your competitors. Yeah, until very recently, because we do have yeah. these indie games now that are okay. doing that. That's going to be it for this episode, I think. So the last question will be, how can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm at uh, Petty J Tyrant. Yeah, I'm at Thomas Grip on Twitter. And that's, I think, how people could find me on the internet. <laughs> the easiest. <laughs> I'm also going to link the frictional blog because I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're on the I don't, I don't like shit. I always get like really oh, anxious when people say they like and like, oh, I should write more than, you know, I haven't written in a bit. So now, <laughs> now I, <laughs> um, there, there's so much stuff I want to do. can't do it all. It's, it's the, the, the constant dilemma. It's, it's, I guess it's a good dilemma. It would be worse. Like, you know, I have nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, no one's reading it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that that would be worse as well. But thank you two for coming on today. Yeah, uh, thanks for having oh. us. Yeah, and the last thing is the Twitter account for this account is Crypt Yeah, thank you both for coming on. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having thanks. us. This is fun.